Hi, this is Pastor Robert Blanchard from Lansing First United Methodist Church here in Lansing, Michigan. I just want to take a moment to thank you for checking out our sermon podcast. And if you want to learn more about what we do here at Lansing First, or you want to support us in our mission of going deep, reaching out, and loving Lansing, you can do so online at lansingfirst.org. Thanks. scripture lesson this morning comes from the book of Esther, chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, and then 9 through 10, and then chapter 9, verses 20 through 22. So the king and Haman went into feast with Queen Esther. On the second day, as they were drinking wine, the king again said to Esther, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have won your favor, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me. That is my petition. And the lives of my people, that is my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have held my peace. But no enemy can compensate for this damage to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has presumed to do this? Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Look, the very gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, stands at Haman's house fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the anger of the king abated. Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, enjoining them that they should keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same month year by year, as the days on which the Jews gained relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday." that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and presents to the poor. The word of God for the people of God. Author of life, we thank you for your word and we ask that your spirit would be with us this morning to transform us in heart and mind and soul. Amen. As we continue our journey through the Hebrew Bible, we find ourselves this week in the book of Esther. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, this book stands with Song of Songs by the distinction that there is never a direct reference to God within its text. Also, like Song of Songs, it tells a story involving sexual ethics that 
is more complicated than we're used to hearing in the church. For these reasons, the the inclusion of Esther within the canon and the proper interpretation of the text have been the subject of much debate. But again, like Song of Songs, something about God's relationship with us is revealed through this book. And since we only see the ending of this story in the lectionary reading, let's flesh things out a little bit more to actually understand who Esther, Haman, and Mordecai are. This is a book about royal intrigue and the Persian court. It's a story about the Jewish people living in the diaspora following the Babylonian exile. It's a story about retaining a cultural identity while living as a minority within an empire. So the story begins not with Esther or Mordecai or Haman. It begins with the king and his wife Vashti. During a massive celebration after the wine had flowed without restraint for seven days, the king demands that the queen be brought before him so that all those who were gathered could see her beauty. But the queen refused to do as the king asked. And then, feeling a sting to his royal ego, the king sent Vashti into exile, announced that she would be replaced by someone better, and sent a letter throughout the whole kingdom, declaring that every man is master of his own house to ensure that wives would be submissive to their husbands. And it's at this point that Esther and Mordecai enter into the story. To replace Queen Vashti, the king sent his servants out to every province of the kingdom to seek out beautiful young virgins. Mordecai, a Jewish man living in the same city as the king, heard about this order and made sure that his niece, whom he cared for like a daughter, was taken with the rest of the young women into the king's harem. His niece's name was Hadassah, but in order to hide her Jewish heritage, she went by the name Esther. And eventually, the day came for Hadassah, now called Esther, to be taken before the king, and she won his favor, and she was named the new queen. As all of this happened, Mordecai also learned that there was a plot among some of the king's servants to assassinate him, and he informed the king through Esther of this betrayal. Now, while Esther became close to the king, there was another who was elevated as well, an advisor named Haman. He had been set above all the other officials in the kingdom, and as a sign of his power, all persons were expected to bow before him. But Mordecai would not bow before Haman. Again, an ego had been insulted, and again, a plan put into place to restore the wounded pride. Haman, however, unlike the king, did not set his wrath only upon the person that he felt had wronged him. No, Haman used his power to issue an edict that in exactly 11 months, all the Jews in the kingdom would be rounded up, slaughtered, and all their goods plundered. 
the news traveled through the kingdom and the Jewish people fell into distress and mourning. Eventually, the news reached Esther in the palace as well, and she was instructed by her uncle Mordecai to use her position as the queen to act on behalf of her people. And it's in these instructions that we see the one veiled reference to God in this whole book, as Mordecai says, For if you keep silence at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews for the Jews from another quarter, but you and your father's family will perish. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to royal dignity for just such a time as this. Esther has the Jewish community fast on her behalf as she gathers up the courage to ask the king for mercy, and she appears once more before the king, this time unbidden, an act no less bold than refusing to appear when summoned. But the king viewed her with favor and offered to grant whatever her request might be up to half his kingdom. She asked simply for the king and for Haman to attend a banquet that she would host for them. The king was happy to grant this request, but Haman was not happy. He still stewed over the insult to his honor from Mordecai, who refused to bow before him. And so he set his servants to building a gallows from which Mordecai would be hanged. Unfortunately, For Haman, his scheming has been outflanked and he doesn't even realize it. For it's at this time that the king recalled the favor that was done for him by Mordecai in revealing an assassination attempt. And the king commands Haman to have a royal robe and a horse sent to Mordecai and for him to be paraded through the public square. And as Haman's plans begin to unravel, he hurries off to the banquet being held by Queen Esther. And it's at this point that we reach today's reading, when Haman's wickedness is revealed, his fate is sealed as that which he intended for Mordecai, and the Jewish people receive their salvation from his genocidal decree. As we reflect on this story We can observe, as we've been able to every week since we moved into the latter half of this series, how the conscience triumphs over inclination. In this story, however, it's not simply a matter of individual conscience, but the conscience of a society. Haman had given his genocidal decree with the king's ignorant blessing, but when the facts of the matter are revealed, the king changes course. And we do also see the triumph of the individual conscience through Mordecai and Esther. Mordecai, who acts as an upright subject of the king throughout this story and is rewarded at the end with Haman's position, He refuses to bow before Haman because, whether it is spoken aloud or not in this text, his allegiance doesn't rest in the powers of this world. And likewise, Esther's conscience prevails as she remains true to her people 
no matter how assimilated to royal power she had become. Her name is changed. She enters into ethically ambiguous sexual situations to ingratiate herself with the king. But through it all, she retains the core of her identity as a member of the Jewish people. The way in which the conscience prevails in this story is perhaps the greatest lesson of the book of Esther. God, who has the power to save us without our help, doesn't choose to save us without our participation. When the Jewish people are without any help except for Esther, Mordecai declares that if she does not act, then relief and deliverance will rise from another quarter, but that many will perish if that is how things go. And we could recall the words of Deuteronomy, words that Jesus drew upon as he wandered in the wilderness. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Or I rather like the translation from the contemporary English version, which reads, Don't try to make him prove that he can help you. God does have the power to save, but God wants us to be responsible children, to grow in spiritual maturity, and to become co-creators of our own salvation and of the kingdom of God. If we truly trust in God's saving power, then we shouldn't need to make God prove that power over and over again. We should be willing to work with God as a trusted partner. Now you've likely heard the little folk tale about this point that goes something like this. There was a man whose house was in an area that was starting to flood. And as the floodwaters began to rise, there were warnings sent out on television and radio telling people to evacuate. The man chose not to evacuate because he said, I have faith. I will be okay. The flood won't get me. God will save me. The waters continued to rise and someone drove by in their Jeep and offered the man a ride. Again, the man said, no, I have faith. I will be okay. The flood won't get me. God will save me. The floodwaters got higher and higher, and as they began to fill his home, he climbed up to the second floor, and now a boat came along, and his would-be rescuers implored him to get in the boat and be saved. But again, the man said, no, I have faith, I will be okay, the flood won't get me, God will save me. By now, the flood had nearly consumed the man's house, and as he stood on his roof, a helicopter crew shouted at him through a megaphone to climb a rope to safety with them, and again, the man said, no, I have faith, I will be okay, the flood won't get me, God will save me. Finally, the floodwaters overtook the house and the man died. After his death, the man appeared before God and said, I had faith. Why did you let me die? To which God replied, I gave you warnings. I sent a jeep, a boat, and a helicopter. What more could I have done for you? You see, the life of faith is not a life of passivity. 
It's an invitation to be empowered by God, to be an active participant in the life of God. Sometimes, as with Esther, that means being a participant in big, awful, historic events that feel like they can overwhelm us. And sometimes, it means being a participant in the small, quiet, everyday ways that God's love is felt and shared within a community. Whether big or small, we know that God is with us as we navigate through this life. We know that whatever challenges lie before us, whether it be discerning the future of a congregation or the future of a denomination, whether it be navigating the uncertain and shifting waters of a natural disaster or a global health crisis, whether it be comforting a grieving family in the wake of a shooting or offering food to a hungry neighbor, God has called us for exactly the moment that we find ourselves in. We've not been called to live a life that is any other than our own. We are called to be representatives of Jesus Christ wherever it is that we find ourselves. So let us find comfort together in that truth as we walk as a community through challenging and uncertain times. Amen. Please pray with me. God of all peoples, in all times and in all places, you are ever with us on this journey that we call life. May we be trusting enough not to feel the need to put you to the test. May we be contemplative enough to hear where you are leading us when the world around us seems to be shouting about where it thinks we should go. May we be courageous enough to go boldly into the unknown and unknowable future. Amen.